Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 is where we'll be this morning. We've made it all the way to verse chapter 4. So look at us go. There's only like 10 more chapters and then we'll be, be through. Much of, of this passage that we're going to cover uh, talks largely about what the role of a, a pastor is supposed to be within a church. Paul kind of uh, is still dealing with the disunity that's taking place at First Baptist Corinth. He's dealing with wisdom according to the world as opposed to wisdom according to God. He's dealing with people who pick their favorite teachers. And so what Paul is doing now is he's going to shift and talk about, okay, you have your favorite pastors, but this is really what a pastor is supposed to do. And this is why what they're doing is so wrong. And this was so interesting to me because when I uh, first felt called to ministry, uh, I was 16. We went to a youth camp. Um, and I felt called, prayed, I went home, and I, I got in the car to talk to my mom, and uh, she was picking me up, and uh, she, she's like, how's camp? And I was like, it's good. I was like, it was great. I was like, I think I'm, I want to be a pastor. I think the Lord's calling me to that. And she went, oh, yeah, I know. Uh, she wasn't at camp. She just seemed to have that mother's intuition, I guess. Um, and so since then, that's kind of been where my life's at. I never really afraid from that calling. It's always been, initially I thought I'd be a youth pastor, and then I thought I'd be a senior pastor, and then ended up as a youth pastor and a missions intern. I did all sorts of stuff. Um, but, but over the years, there's funny things that happen when you're a pastor, and people treat you very funny. Uh, come to the golf course with me and see the awkwardness that takes place when somebody hits a bad shot, and you're standing right there, and they know what you do for a living. It's awesome. I remember having friends in high school when I would when I graduated. Uh, that, that this is always what I was going to do. I was, I was always going to go be a pastor uh, since since sixteen, um, and, and and genuinely trying to support me and, and and be supportive. They would write things or they'd say things like, "You're going to pastor a mega church one day," and I was like, "Ooh, I don't I don't think I'm doing well." <laughs> but I don't know if I want to pastor a mega church. I don't think that's the point of being a pastor. Uh, not long ago, I don't remember who she was telling it to. Addie was talking to somebody, and she said that uh, her dad's the boss of the church. And I was like, that's not true in the least bit. Uh, bossy, it might be true, but not the, the boss of the church. If you start looking around at other churches and look at the titles that are listed for pastors, it's really funny to me. You have senior pastors, or some people don't want to call yourselves that, so they'll say that they're the lead pastor, or they're the executive pastor, or they're a director, or there's all sorts of titles in this kind of hierarchy that, that takes place with this. If you talk to pastors, then a lot of times, I think it's a good thing, they, they want to take ownership of, of what they're pastoring, the church they're pastoring, but they'll refer to their church as my church. Well, that's not true. It's, it's not their church. Uh, I, I googled what does a pastor do just because I thought it would be fun to see what uh, Google said in, in the dictionary, the Oxford Dictionary says a pastor is a minister who's in charge of a Christian church. But that's not necessarily the biblical idea of a church. So I thought, well, I'll go to a more reliable source. So I went to Wikipedia to search for what a pastor is. And they said a pastor is a leader of a congregation who gives good advice to people in the community or the congregation. So I have advice, but it is not good. You start talking or you get into other places, uh, there's these hierarchies that kind of develop within pastoral culture. And what they're based on is all sorts of arbitrary measurements. Uh, some pastors, if you have more church members than other, other, pa- other 
pastors, then you're considered a, a good church member. If you have more attendance on Sunday morning, then you're, you're considered a better pastor than others. Or if you have more attendance at Sunday school, then you're considered a better pastor than others. Or if you have a church staff that's large, you're considered a good pastor. If you have all of these academic degrees that are stacked up upon themselves, you, you might be considered a better pastor. Or if you've written books or written articles or read books or read articles, those are things. If you've given conference speeches, those are all things that, that within the pastor world kind of make people think this somebody's a ooh. I think my battery died I'll just use the pulpit <laughs> yeah yeah I know you can hear me I'll speak loud there we go that work all sorts of these arbitrary measurements that take place on what makes somebody a good pastor what makes somebody a bad pastor with their church is growing, if the church is shrinking, if there's all these sorts of things. And so what's been refreshing this week as I've been reading this text of scripture and meditating in it is, is Paul essentially just waters it down and says all of those things are nonsense. Right, just a few weeks ago when we walked through it, we saw the passage where it was Paul watered, or Paul planted, Apollos watered, but who gives the growth? God. So if we're measuring people on things that God is responsible for and we're crediting them, we're not doing what the Bible is saying to do. Our job is not to grow. Our job is to water and to plant and to trust the Lord for that growth in whatever way that looks like. And a lot of times it's not numerical growth. It's spiritual growth. It's maturity that takes place within the church. But those things are far harder to measure than just counting heads. And so Paul gets down to it right here because this was the issue with the unity that was taking place. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll break it down verse by verse like we do. A person should think of us in this way, as a servant of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It's the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will, bring both, uh, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart, and then praise will come to each one from God. Let's pray. I'm just going to turn it off, is that all right? And yell.
local church. Hey, thank you. <laughs> it's Clements Farms. That's the address to send the invoice to. Yeah. All right, Paul's continuing his thoughts on spiritual maturity, spiritual wisdom, and he's tying it to the role of a minister for a very important reason. If you've been with us through 1 Corinthians or you remember 1 Corinthians, Paul starts everything out by talking about these divisions that have formed within the church over the different pastors, the different ministers that they've had. All of them have been good, orthodox, doctrinally correct and sound men of the God who, who proclaim, who preach, but this church has divided up and has picked these factions over who they like better and who they think everybody else should follow. And so what Paul's doing is he's saying pastors, ministers should be thought of like this, and he lists two things, and then really the rest of the passage is breaking down why these two things should be this way. So he says pastors should be servants of Christ. Now this is not the normal word the scripture uses for servant. It's a different word. And if you get real technical and delve into it, it initially started as under rowers is what it was, on the boats when you would have the servants, the slaves who would row the boats. These were the guys at the bottom. They're meant to be thought of as the lowest of the low servants, as those who do the most menial, those who do the most unenvied, the despised slaves on these ships. That's the word that Paul chooses to use here. Somebody who is subordinate to all other forms of authority. Why? Why is it that Paul would choose this word with this kind of nuance and that kind of weight attached to it to talk about ministers, to talk about pastors? Because Paul wants the people to understand ultimately, all of us, any person, any person, any human being, but, but especially pastors, are first and foremost under the authority of God. That God has placed us under him to serve God for the benefit of others. That we're, there's nobody else that we're, like it's, that's the slave where you're that kind of servant below God completely and fully under his authority. That there should be no other voices saying what to do. And the best way for pastors to do that is to, to understand, the best way for a servant to do that is to, to completely and totally be under the authority of God, is to be in the Word. So this means, and, and this is one of the hardest things, and, and you pray for me because it is difficult to have a personal devotional life that's not immediately tied to the sermons that you try to write. So you study God's Word deeply for personal edification, trying to grow your own heart, grow yourself in the Lord, but then you're also studying it for the people that you pastor. But ultimately, you care about God's word first and foremost, and because you care about God's word and under that authority, that then plays into the church. So listen, this is where I think our culture misses the call of a pastor. The call here is not to be creative. It's not to add things to the word of God to try to make it more palatable. It's to be obedient to the word of God. The call is not to be innovative. 
doing all sorts of things that might be attractional driven, that might help people get in the door. That's not the call of Scripture. The call of Scripture is to be faithful to the Word of God as a servant. To be under the authority of God. So, so this is, Paul says, this is how people should view pastors. They're servants of God, like that low, low, low status. And then also he says, as, as managers is what the CSB says, or maybe yours says stewards. Both are good words to use of the mysteries of God. Steward is, is used in some of the older and more literal translations. Managers is used in some of the more newer and, and less rigid translations. Both are a good word, although I like the idea of stewardship better if we understand what that word means. We just don't run around calling people stewards very often. It means somebody who is entrusted with a particular task, and they are responsible for that task. So, so uh, at this culture and at this stage, these stewards would be household managers, household stewards. And they would be responsible for the property and the fields and the vineyards and the finances and the food and the servants. That would all be under their umbrella of authority that they are responsible for maintaining. Here's the great thing about it and why it's so important for you and I. To, if we can understand stewardship as it's taught in Scripture, your lives will change, my lives will change. Because what it means is you're not the owner of anything. Everything that we have is from the Lord, and our job is to steward, to manage those things, and that's all-encompassing. It includes our finances, but far too often when we talk about stewardship, we just a sermon on tithing and how the church needs more money and more of you to give. That's not the case with stewardship. It is a part of it, but it's far more than just that. God's given you time. Every person has a certain amount that we're going to live, and that time is not yours. It's the Lord's, and we steward it for His glory. Your kids are not yours. God has given them to you to steward for his glory. Everything within your life is this way. Entrusted with a particular task, with certain things to use them for the glory of God. This is how Jesus talks about his disciples in in Luke. When, when you look at the qualifications for an, an elder or an overseer in, in Titus, this stewardship is, is mentioned within the list in, in, in the book of Titus. In, in 1 Peter, Peter talk, and, and we'll, we'll get into it because Corinthians talks a lot about spiritual gifts later on. And so we'll get into those things there. But, but in 1 Peter, which we just went through not that long ago, Peter talks about how God has given us gifts and we're meant to steward those gifts for his glory. You're not the owner. I'm not the owner. We're the managers. Entrusted to take care of what's been placed within our responsibility. But for pastors, Paul specifically says, you steward the mysteries of God. And this can sound odd because the, the Bible uses mysteries in a way that we don't. And we've already seen mysteries in, in 1 Corinthians a couple times, and so we know what Paul's talking about. This isn't Scooby-Doo kind of mysteries, although every time I read it, that's what I think of as Scooby-Doo solving mysteries in the mystery machine. A mystery in the Scripture is something that was not known that has been revealed by God. And so we can look at Corinthians, specifically 1 Corinthians 2, and we can see that this mystery that God is talking about is the gospel. 
It's something that was unknown, that's previously been, uh, that's been made known. Paul's talking about the gospel, the truth of Christ crucified and resurrected. That Jesus in my place has been God's plan from the before time began. The gospel, that's the mystery that pastors are meant to steward. It's not mine. I don't own the gospel. I'm just simply meant to steward it. You're meant to steward it. And if we're to steward the gospel, then there are certain things we cannot do. It is not our job to take the gospel and then to change it to make it more palatable to our culture. Even small little things that don't seem significant. It's not our job to take the gospel and to dress it up and to try to make it more appealing to people. The gospel is offensive. Let's just be honest. The gospel is you're not good enough, God's good enough, you need to understand you're not good enough, repent of your sin and turn to Jesus, he is good enough. That's offensive. It doesn't mean water down some parts of it and then overemphasize some other parts of the gospel. It also means that if we're to steward the gospel well, if pastors are to steward the gospel well, the Bible, the word of God, then we preach all of the word of God and not just certain parts. There's one book in the Bible I am petrified to preach. And it's not because I don't know what it means. It's because I do. Song of Solomon. There's stuff in there that I would have to look down because I would blush reading the rest of it and trying to preach through it. We'll get there one day, maybe when I'm 80. The goal of the gospel, the goal of the pastor to be a servant of Christ and to steward the mysteries of God, to steward the gospel. The, the role of a pastor is not necessarily to be the cook who's in the kitchen putting everything together. The role of the pastor, the role of you and I, if we're honest, is to take the gospel that's been prepared by Christ and go and serve it to others. If we're adding ingredients to it on the way out there, we're not serving the gospel, we're changing it. We're watering it down. We're essentially telling God, my gospel is a little bit better than yours. No. We take it and we proclaim it. And here we will work book by book, verse by verse through scriptures. And that means that we will come to some passages that are awkward. <laughs> Read First Corinthians. There's a few coming up. And that means that sometimes we will have passages in sermons where we'll say, listen, if you're a, a child and you don't want your kids to hear what we're about to cover, there'll be a place for them to go in, in the back. Not today, but there'll be other times when we've done that with Genesis, and we'll do that in 1 Corinthians as well. But it's important for us to go through those things. It's important for us to walk through all the passages of Scripture, not just skip the ones that seem boring like the chronologies. All of the word of God is inspired. All of it. What you do not need me to do is to stand up here and to offer you pseudo-spiritual points on how you can live a better life. Some of you are older than me. Some of you are a lot older than me. You know life far better than I do. Have you seen my fashion sense? 
If you heard the music I like to hear, I eat like a child. A hot dog and chicken nuggets are great. You don't need me to give you advice on how to live. What you do need me to do, what I need to do to be faithful to God is to proclaim his word. Nothing more, nothing less. That's the calling of stewarding the gospel. It's to take it each and every week and we walk through scripture. And sometimes I preach a passage in the next week. I'm like, it's the same points over and over again. And I just take that to me and God wants us to hear it again because he knows how hard-headed we can be in Ira. Over and over and over again, hearing the gospel, having it wash over us like the waves and the sea. Because at the end of the day, what Paul says the goal of pastors, what pastors will be judged on, is faithfulness. Not how large the church is, not how small the church is. Not how many are in Sunday school, not how many are in worship, not how many serve on committees, not how many committees you've added, not how many committees you've killed, not how many potlucks you hosted. None of those things are what we're judged by. It's are you faithful to God's calling? The job is just to bring the food and not mess it up. And ultimately, pastors are responsible to God first and foremost. This means in private life, this means in public life, and in all of these things Paul is saying are for pastors, but honestly, it's for all Christians. It's vital for pastors, but it should be a goal that all Christians strive to attain, that your life should be under the authority of God, that God should be the main voice that you're listening to within your life, that you steward the mysteries of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that is something that you don't add to, you don't take away to, but that you're serving others and that you're glorifying God's way. So you do this, not, not Paul's way, not the Corinthians' way, not my way, not your way, but we do it God's way. Faithfulness to the gospel is being completely obedient to God and taking care of what he has given you. Look at the next two verses, verse 3 and 4. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified this by this. It is the Lord who judges me. These two verses have been taken by pastors and been misapplied for a long time. They've been misunderstood largely by prosperity gospel preachers who don't want you to question them. And so what they'll do is they'll point to these passages and they'll say, you don't need to question me, you can't judge me for what I'm going to say, I'm an anointed man of God, and then they'll tell you to send them a bunch of money. So that works. But that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying fits in perfectly with the points that he's been making in this letter. He says he isn't in the ministry for approval of man. He isn't concerned about how others assess him, how others evaluate the effectiveness of his ministry. This doesn't mean that we should never evaluate a pastor and we should never self-evaluate if you are a pastor. That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, in Galatians, Paul criticizes Peter. 
And we see that Paul calls out false teachers throughout the New Testament. So there's not any sort, it's not Paul saying you should never evaluate a pastor at all. What he's saying is that every compliment and every critique is imperfect. No person sees the entire picture of what is going on. You can't see your heart. You don't know the true, full motives of why we do things all the time. So don't get too flattered when people compliment you. And don't get offended when they get upset. I had a coach who used to tell us, you're not as bad as you think you are, and you're not as good as you think you are. Self-evaluations can be important. However, they're incomplete. God knows our hearts far more than we do. God knows our motives far more than we do. What we can do is we can lean into the gospel and be as honest with ourselves as we can be. We don't know all, but we do know some. We can be encouraged. We can repent. What Paul's getting at is is a unity killer, which is pride. And pride is a sin that has to be killed or it takes over the entire life that you have. And it takes all sorts of various shapes within us. Kill pride and cultivate humility. What the Corinthians were doing was they were trying to evaluate these pastors that they liked based on their effectiveness. Well, when Paul came, he instituted this structure, and the giving project raised its money very quickly. But when Apollos came, the outreach ministry that he started grew the church by so much, so we should just pick which one based on the effectiveness of what they did. That's not the biblical picture of what a pastor is supposed to be. They were trying to determine what the final reward for these pastors would be. Mr. Jones preached on on that passage for me where there's uh, uh, wood and hay and straw and then there's gold and silver and and, and precious stone and at the end when Jesus comes back it's all burned away and all that's left is the gold and the silver and the precious stone. And so what the Corinthians were doing was they were arguing, well I think Paul's going to have some rubies over here and and Peter may have some gold and Apollos may have some silver but Paul's going to have the stack and then the other group was like, no, 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 this guy's going to have more of these things. No, no, that's not the point. They were arguing over which person was going to have the most stuff so that they could follow after that person. It was creating these divisions. It was showing this lack of maturity, this lack of unity. And what Paul is saying is, you don't have the capability to judge those pastors like that. You don't know the whole story. And what Paul says is is fascinating to me. Paul says, I don't even judge myself like that because I don't understand my heart fully and completely. So he's basically, I'm not listening to your grievances that are illegitimate, and I'm not going to listen to my own grievances that are illegitimate. And then Paul says, but that's not why I'm justified. Did you catch that? Paul's saying it's not the work of a pastor that will save him. Sometimes pastors can have this kind of martyr complex that takes place where they decide the church is just mean, they do everything right, and the church just hates them, and they hate the Lord, and so they leave and do these different things. That's not the case. It's not the works of a pastor that save him. 
It's not the pastor's ability to take criticism without being too shy. It's not the pastor's ability to receive compliments that save him. None of those things save a person. What saves a person is the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. What makes a pastor good is his faithfulness to the gospel. And what makes a pastor faithful to the gospel is if he's a believer in Jesus Christ and he has a saving faith. At the end of the day, the Lord will assess his ministry. And we read in scriptures that pastors will be held very accountable for their flock. But it's the Lord who's the one who judges. And it's also the Lord who justifies. Paul says, I can't think of anything that would be an issue in my life, but that's not how I'm justified. It's not based on works. It's not based on goodness. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is why salvation is so important, and our, a correct understanding of salvation is so important. That we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as the Bible alone tells us. This is one of the things that the, the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther struggled with. Was he believed, and I think there's Christians who believe this too, that you have to confess every single little sin you've ever committed for it to be forgiven. Can you, like, ooh, I'm not an anxious person. It drives most of the people that are close to me crazy. I don't get that worried about anything. That makes me feel anxious inside. What if I, did I forget this? Like, when I was two, I can't remember much. Did I sin when I was two? What about when I was one? We certainly should confess sins. The Bible clearly tells us that. But we must also understand that our memories are fallible. That we are broken. That we can't remember all of our sins. That we are really good at sinning. That we're accountable to God. But by grace and grace alone we're saved. And it's not our confession that saves us of sin. It's not our confession of sin. It's not our ability to recall every single little thing I've done wrong. It's if we confess sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That God knows us better than we know ourselves. So in a very real sense, what Paul is telling us is this freeing of, yeah, you have sins, and you're not going to remember every single one of them to repent to God, but it's God knows. What Paul's saying here is a, a pastor's ministry is going to be judged by God. This is where I think the world and a lot of churches misunderstand the role of a pastor. Ultimately, a pastor's responsibility is not to the church, but to God. And so there may be things that frustrate you. Things not done the way that you want them to be done or the way that you like them to be done. And you can always kindly come and talk to me. And I will listen. But at the end of the day, I am accountable to God. 
and will do what I feel is best there. Because look at verse 5. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then the praise will come to each one from God. Our culture has this big problem with judgment. We should not be judgmental, meaning just nitpicking every single little person uh, in life and every single little thing that they're doing. We should not be judgmental. However, to say that we should not judge is not biblical. If you say you shouldn't judge, that's a judgment you're issuing on somebody else. So you can't tell somebody that you shouldn't judge without being judging them. The passage that, that normally gets brought up is, is Jesus talking, and it's we just say, do not judge. But if you keep reading, it says, <laughs> take the, right, uh, take the uh, splinter out of your own eye, or the plank out of your own eye, before you get the splinter out of your brother's. You still have to get the splinter out of their eye. They still need the splinter out. But the two-by-four that's hanging out of yours is a little bit more important to get out. It's not be judgmental. It's not be a jerk. It's know somebody, care for somebody, love somebody, and in that case, you encourage them to grow in the Lord. And so sometimes that means you build them up, and sometimes that means you call out the hard things. But ultimately, what Paul is saying here is you and I are not perfect in our judgments, and we never will be. But in the end, the one that we're accountable to, God himself is perfect in those judgments. He sees the heart. He, his knowledge is limitless. Our knowledge is very limited. We cannot faithfully discern the motives of, of even our own heart, let alone somebody else's heart, yet God can. And many of our motives are hidden in dark places that will be revealed. What Paul's talking about here, he's not talking about sin, he's not talking about evil, he's just talking about things that are not known. I do not know why I like oatmeal cream pie so much, I just know that I do. And the Newcombs turned me on to peanut butter oatmeal cream pies. And let me tell you, whew, it was a good day. God sees the things that are hidden. God sees the things in the dark. And those things in the judgment when Christ comes back will be revealed. Because God knows the heart. Because God knows everything. Which means his reward will be just. All Christians will receive a reward of some kind. I think it's interesting, Tanner, saying we uh, fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet. That's the goal of the reward, isn't it? To lay our crowns, to lay the things that we've, earned, that, the, that we've been given at the feet of Jesus. The wood, the hay, the straw is going to get burned away. The big bad wolf's going to come. But the gold, the silver, the precious stones remain. And those rewards are based upon the motives of our heart, something that only God can see the full picture of. So we lean into the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus in my place is everything. There's nothing more, there's nothing less. That's what the gospel is. And we kill pride that wells up, and we cultivate humility because that's what a gospel-centered heart is supposed to be. 
heart that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, that he lived the life I should have lived, that he died the death that I deserved. And if my heart is gospel-centered, though not perfect on this side of heaven, but if the Lord is sanctifying me and growing me in a gospel-centered heart, then my external actions are going to change as well. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. We can plant, we can water, but God gives the growth. You and I cannot change hearts. But God can. This is the picture Paul is giving of what pastors are supposed to be. They're not CEOs, we're not business leaders. The church is not a business. But all Christians should be wired these ways and have these desires that Paul's laying out here. Because at the end of the day, it's our hearts that God looks at. Serve God, steward what he's given us. So here at, at our church, we're congregational in our polity, which means we all make decisions together. That's why we have member meetings. The nominating committee is going to get in touch with you soon if you're a member here to find out where you want to serve. I already texted him. They've already been, in, been a pain in the neck. This passage began... Right? The implications of a gospel-centered heart are a heart that serves and stewards what God has given us well. And so uh, when we talk about stewardship, there's things we need to look at. When we talk about a gospel-centered heart, there's things that we have to evaluate. God has given you time. You only have so much time per day. You only have so many weeks to live in your life. You only have so many months, so many years. And so if you step back and you look at your calendar, does your calendar reflect a heart that is gospel-centered or does it reflect a heart that might be chasing after some things that are not quite worthy of the Lord. God has given you talent. You may think, I have no talent whatsoever. It's not true. God has given you gifts that are primarily to be used within the local church. It means if you're a member, you should be serving somewhere in the church. Are you serving and are you serving well? So often we have to be careful because our hearts slip into this idea that I come to the church to get. I don't come to give. I come to relax, not to to do things. No, no, no. God has called you to be active, to do things. Are you using what God has gifted you with? Treasure. Time, talent, treasure. Those are the three Baptist acronyms. In the New Testament, there's not a set number or percentage on what you're supposed to tithe. The word tithe means 10%. We've talked about this over and over. There may be some seasons in your life where 10% is too much, and you shouldn't do that. There may be seasons when 10% is not enough. The idea uh, in the New Testament of giving of your treasure is sacrificial giving, generous giving.
consistent and faithful. The reason why I think is important because it reminds us that it is not yours, it's the Lord's. And it's a subtle way to kill pride. There's another aspect of this passage that needs to be addressed. Much of this passage is about pastors and ministers leading a church and how they should be properly evaluated. But that doesn't mean that a pastor should never be criticized. It doesn't mean that a pastor should never be uh, talked about those ways. That's a false interpretation of this passage. But it does mean that we need to make sure we understand the goals, to understand what we should be evaluating pastors on. Are the sermons gospel-centered? Biblical, expository, gospel-centered sermons. Our pastor's encouraging you to disciple one another and to empower one another to make believers more mature in Jesus Christ. Our pastor's encouraging others to grow in Jesus and to plug into the body of Christ. Here's the reality. It's not my church, and it's not your church. It's Christ's church. He is the owner, and you and I are simply stewards of what he has given plug in and serve faithfully. What we win people with is what we win people to. If we get people with entertainment, we have to keep people with entertainment. And I only have so many jokes. What the world needs from us is not entertainment. They need the gospel of Jesus proclaimed. I got to thinking about this this morning. We are at war as a church. This is not a time for us to relax. It's a time to fight. There are so many voices around us lobbying for our attention, lobbying for our children, lobbying for all sorts of ideas and thoughts that, infest, uh, that infest our minds and our hearts. This is not a time where we're not in battle. We are fighting. Fight back. Give your time to something worthwhile. God may be calling you to do things that you're a little bit uncomfortable with. It's not going to be easy to fight this battle and to fight this war, but God has placed us together to fight it within our community. And so don't say, I'm not called to serve there. You very well might be. Don't say my time is over and I'm done. I'm just going to to coast through this. You, You might need to serve in a different area and step away for a season. I completely understand that. But God is not done with you until he takes you home. And you may say, I'm not a teacher, or I don't have time, or I don't want uh, I don't want to, or my kids don't want to. God knows the heart. God knows your heart. And that's the uh, your heart is not the ultimate authority. You control your calendar. Don't let it control you. You can learn to be a teacher. It's hard and it's frustrating. But when Jesus comes back and judges, if he finds you faithful, maybe exhausted, but faithful, praise the Lord.
God knows the heart, steward and serve the gospel well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, I thank you that our life is so much more than just the external things that we do. That you look inside and you see the motives of our heart. The core of who we are. God, we have no power to change our hearts, but you can and you do. So God, I pray for the believers here this morning that you would encourage us. That sometimes we can feel defeated and sometimes we can feel like it's just pointless. That uh, sometimes we can feel uh, just hurt and just wounded and tired and exhausted. But God, you look at the heart. Help us to grow in you. Use us for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.